Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of the Sustainable Futures Report before Christmas. I'm Anthony Day and it's Friday the 11th of December. This week I'm talking to Harold Overholm, CEO of Alight Energy of Stockholm, about coupling renewable energy with power purchase agreements. The UK government has published its NDC, its revised commitment under the Paris Agreement, and there's more news of extreme weather following a report from the Met Office. We've mentioned air pollution as a worrying and increasing cause of death several times on the Sustainable Futures Report. This week, sad and concerning news brings that threat very close to home. First of all, here's my interview with Harold Overholm. My guest this time is Harold Overholm from Alight. Now, Harold's background includes a PhD at Cambridge, where he studied the United States uh, solar PPA market. PPA, I think, is Power Purchase Agreement. Is that correct? That, that's absolutely correct, Anthony. And after that, you were some six years as an external associate with the Stockholm Environmental Institute, which is in Stockholm, but is also uh, an international organization. In fact, we've even had uh, part of it here in York in the UK. At the moment, you are talking to me from Stockholm, of course. Exactly. I'm, I'm calling you from Stockholm, where it, which is where I'm based and live these days. Right. And you're currently, uh, you started as a founder, but you're currently the CEO of Alight a solar energy company. Now, there are lots of solar energy companies. My first question for you has got to be, what makes yours different? Right, well, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, we are, so as a company, we're 100% specialized in the power purchase agreement model. So as, as you mentioned, the PPA, we call it. Or, um, it's a simple contractual model that helps customers to buy solar energy as a simple service. And we are very focused on corporate, large corporate energy users. So uh, it's it's really the one and only thing we do. We sell solar PPAs to uh, large corporate power users, and this makes us fairly special, so or fairly unique in a European setting. There's not a lot of other companies around with that degree of specialization, and the, the and the few that you'll find will usually have some particular geographical angle or. Um, perhaps focusing on very large projects in Spain, for example. Um, and in that case, usually the unique selling point from us is that we, we focus on the Nordics and we focus on small and repeatable projects. We do a lot of on-site um, projects, which is rooftop uh, projects, obviously. So, yeah, just to summarize, we, we're fully specialized in, in creating solar energy as a service. Um, and we do that in situations where, where there's not a lot of other people specializing. Right, now, as I understand it, you approach an organization and you offer to supply them with electricity uh, at a lower rate than they would buy on the market, which is why it's interesting. And then you install a solar farm of some sort to provide the power. And quite, you, you, you might do that on land or you might do that on the roof of their building. Is that, is that correct so far? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. So, and it's all about, I mean, taking a small step back for us, it's all about uh, subsidy-free solar. I mean, it's all about creating an organically driven market for solar build-out where 
the build-out is happening because power users need the power. So it's not happening because the government is making a decision to subsidize solar uh, or because there's any particular kind of incentive in place. It's really about just turning solar energy into kind of better power for power users. And because and, that's how I think how you find an unstoppable force in the solar market, which is what we all want, obviously. And to do that, just as you're saying, yeah, we have to offer uh, solar power as a simple contract, and it can be both uh, a rooftop contract, it can be an offsite contract, so there, you know, it can be a small amount of electricity, it can be a large amount of electricity. It's really one of the values of solar, I think, is that it's, it's so modular and you can make it, and you can, you can make sure it makes financial sense both in the, in the small deployments and in the large uh, deployments. Right. So your, your customers are simply buying electricity from you, if I'm correct, and that you are owning all the kit or all the panels. It's really that simple. Exactly. So from the customer's point of view, they're just there is no behavioral change. Right. Because that's how they buy electricity today. They buy it per kilowatt hour. And that's how we offer them uh, this new thing. But, but the difference is just that this new electricity comes from a newly built solar project doesn't come from, from just any uh, power producing uh, gear on the grid. But from the customer's point of view, it's just as simple. So just buy power per kilowatt hour. And it's up, we have to orchestrate then the whole delivery of that, including, as you were saying, making sure that we have the finance to own mm. those assets um, and to build them and, and to just make that whole thing come together. So the simplicity is on the side of the customer and the complexity is on our side. Right. So if you have a dark day or indeed if you have a dark night and you can't actually provide power, they presumably switch to the grid over that uh, for that period. Yes, very important point. So uh, some some customers come to us um, and, and ask us if we provide 100 percent of their power, which obviously we would all think would be a great thing if we could uh, if we could replace all of their power with solar power. But mm -hmm. that's today would, would not be. Uh, feasible simply because of course solar power produces power when the sun shines and as we as we look ahead i mean one just one or two years ahead then storage is going to help us to produce power even even more similar to the base load power that we expect from the grid but it's still not going to be enough to cover 100 percent of anyone's uh, needs especially not if those needs are in the winter and during night etc so at the moment, for a typical customer, let's take Swedbank, for example, which is a, a large uh, Nordic bank, and we're supplying about 30% of the power uh, that Swedbank uses in Sweden. So 30% would be uh, a reasonable number that you could supply with the help of solar power, and then the rest of the power would come from, from other sources. If, in fact, you produce more electricity than your client needs at any point in time, then presumably you sell that back to the grid, do you? Yeah, exactly. So there's always a power market that, that's out there willing to accept electricity. But for us, what we need in order to, to build these assets and to finance them is really the, um, that's really what our customers are providing to the solar market, is that the customers are providing a long-term stability in terms of what we're going to get paid for the electricity. So just as we are important to the customers, um, it's good to know that the customers are important for the solar market because we couldn't just, or typically today in Europe, you can't just build a solar asset expecting the, uh, the spot price that you get from the electricity market to cover your costs. It would be uh -huh. 
certain. Um, so you need that stability that the customer can provide by buying the bulk of your power. Right. Now, going back to the point about storage, uh, you feature on your website work that you've done with uh, Toyota Materials Handling. Um, and of course, they use fork trucks, which are electric. And uh, you are repurposing used batteries, if I understand it correctly, so that they are a, a backup resource, if you like. Exactly. So really exciting project with, with Toyota. We were approached by Toyota because there's really a dual need here. They, they need solar power for their sites across Europe. So that's something we're working on. We just rolled out a rooftop installation for Toyota, the, the headquarters in, in Sweden. And at the same time, as you're saying, the, the new generation of forklifts um, from Toyota Material Handling is, is run on electricity with lithium-ion batteries um, <clears throat> as the storage medium. And something needs to happen with these lithium-ion batteries after they are done uh, in, in the forklift. And, and um, the quality of the lithium-ion battery goes down slightly over time to a point where it's not really feasible to use it uh, in a mission critical machinery such as a forklift, but you can still do a lot with it in terms of energy storage when you apply it to the grid because you have simply lower quality requirements for storage. You can accept a, a longer discharge or, or charging cycle, etc. Uh, so that's something we've been looking at together with Yoto. We haven't we haven't put any of those projects into practice yet. We haven't uh, deployed that storage, but it's more. The important thing from Toyota is to see that there's a second life for the batteries that they use in the forklifts. And as more and more batteries will move into that second life, then using them together with solar installations would be a very good way of, of uh, making sure that they are useful and keep delivering value uh, and not just turning to, to uh, scrap. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to see more and more batteries, aren't we? As more and more people turn to electric cars, uh, the batteries will have, um, uh, they will reach the end of their useful life. I, I suppose if they degrade, the thing is that you might need two batteries to provide the same amount of storage as one new battery. But of course, if you're not actually putting that battery in a car or any other sort of vehicle, you it doesn't really matter. It's The, the bulk is not yeah. an issue, is it? Yeah, I think, and I think that, that that's the interesting thing to realise with batteries is that Sometimes with batteries, you have very strict requirements in terms of, of size and, and volume because you want to put them into a vehicle and, and there's a very exact equation. But then sometimes, when you, especially when you use it together with solar in an off-site installation, so we have this, again, for Swedbank, which is the project that we built for Swedbank, which is the largest solar park in Sweden. It, it's out there on a, on a field and it's a, it's a huge field. I mean, and there's, there's all kinds of space left where it would be easy to put storage and, and the volume wouldn't be the critical aspect of that. We could, we could easily accept two batteries uh, doing the work of one uh, if, if that meant a better uh, cost equation or just more sustainability. So, so really, that's the, I think that's, it's an encouraging aspect of battery deployment is that there's all these different kind of use cases where we, as the solar industry, can provide a fairly tolerant use case at at the, the tail end of the lives of, of these batteries. Right, well, you're speaking to me from Sweden, but you operate 
uh, across Europe, I believe. You have sites clients outside Sweden. We do, and we haven't communicated any finished project in Europe yet, and that's because we got going on the European expansion just uh, one and a half years ago. So really the background was in Sweden, and we kind of cut our teeth in doing subsidy-free solar rooftops in Sweden at the point where there was almost no rooftop solar being done on a subsidy-free basis anywhere in Europe. So we're somewhat proud of the fact that we could go, we could be in the nor most northernmost country in Europe and make that work financially, even in, in 2015 when we did our first project. But now as, as the market in Europe has been, the market for subsidy-free solar, for PPA bank solar is growing very rapidly across Europe and catching up to the US market, then we've been uh, very keen to to move across Europe. So we're, uh, we have people now in Spain and then in, uh, in Warsaw and Poland, uh, and we're talking to clients across Europe. A lot of our clients being large power users, they're also large companies, so multinational companies. So one conversation with a company might uh, lead us to projects across a number of different uh, countries in Europe, simply because the customers such as Toyota will have sites across Europe. It's very interesting So you're doing this without subsidy because it's it's only relatively recently that it's been possible to do this sort of thing. But that's really, I think, because the price of solar panels has crashed, hasn't it? So the solar, the, the price of what we call the LCOE or the levelized cost of electricity, which is kind of the all-inclusive power price for solar, when you bake in all the costs and you get a, a cost per kilowatt hour across the lifespan of solar, now, that price has been coming down for at least 10% per year for a very long time now. And of course, you know, given the mathematical laws of exponentiality, etc., when you look at the curve, it looks as though it's flattening out. But, but really, it's just a, it's still coming down about 10% every year. And there's, there are logical reasons for it. So it, there's nothing strange happening. It's just simply a question of the learning, the learning curve, as it were playing out um, and, and people becoming more efficient across this ecosystem. And that means that since about two years, there is what we call grid parity or socket parity across uh, very large parts of, of the EU. So we can produce electricity at a lower cost than the alternative from the grid. And with the additional values of being something green and very tangible and being price locked as if you like. So it's it's not volatile when we when we contract with a customer they'll, they'll know predictably that they have the same price for a long time so yeah it really i mean if you want to do subsidy free solar you have to take a step back and and, and reflect upon what value are you creating for end customers that will make them want this and i think that's that's what happened we've come to a point where uh, power from new solar is really better power than the power that you can buy from from the grid yeah, and the, interest, the other interesting thing you mentioned is, of course, that you are in Sweden, in Northern Europe, and yet you can actually uh, produce viable solar electricity. I suppose you have to angle the uh, panels uh, at a particular way because of the angle of the sun, but uh, and uh, does it not drop off quite a lot in the winter? Well, it does, of course. I mean, of course it does, but that just goes back to the, the, the fundamental insight that we're not trying to provide 100% of our customers' uh, power need. We're just what we're trying to do is to provide a certain amount of their power need, but make sure that that that, that particular amount is better power than what they have today. So if that's thirty percent, then as you're as you're saying, most of most of that 
those 30% will come uh, during the six sunny months of the year if you're in Sweden. Um, and but that's still great. I mean, we're 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 adding new power to the uh, to the grid, and we're creating better power for customers. Um, not 100, percent but uh, that doesn't have to. That, that's not something that ultimately the customers, if they want 100 percent sort of better power, then they will have to combine it with wind and with storage, etc., which is which is feasible in its own right. But that's not our role to make that happen. Right, well, looking at the broad, the broad picture, then, of course, in the long term, the world needs to go to carbon-free electricity. So presumably that will be a combination of solar and wind and storage and also insulation and uh, efficiencies. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, I think that's that's the whole point, right? So and, and we as a team, we we're we're purpose driven throughout. I think most of us have have come to this uh, this market and this company because it's something we really believe in. And, and as you're saying, it will not be the the response to climate change will not be one single technology. It will be a mix of them, and we have to just make sure that we're very good at providing our part of that mix um, and seeing the role that that part plays in the whole. Well, finally, um, what's your view of the future? How fast are we going to get to carbon-free electricity? Uh, do you see any challenges on the way? I've been in this field for 15 years, and uh, it's, I think it's been every year, the general market has underestimated the pace of growth of solar and storage. Uh, and that seems to still be the case. So um, that just helps me believe that we will reach um, a very high degree of solar penetration and, and wind penetration much quicker than we thought. Um, but of course, you know what stands between us and that happening is just hard work and entrepreneurship and 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 building companies, which is of course what we're doing. So it's not going to come uh, by itself. But but certainly, I think the potential is there for the deployment to be much more rapid than anyone has thought. Harold, thank you very much for taking oh, the time to talk today to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Harold Overholm, CEO of Alight Energy. Find out more at alight-energy.com, A-L-I-G-H-T-E-N-E-R-G-Y.com. As promised, the government has published its revised NDC, its nationally determined contribution, its target for achieving net zero emissions by 2050 under the Paris Agreement. The headlines announced a 68% emissions cut by 2030. That's 68% down on 1990 levels. We're already down 41%, but that's still a considerable target for the coming decade. You could be cynical. You could say it's a step in the right direction, which it is, but that the problem is that at this late stage we need not just a step but a giant leap. You could point out that the Prime Minister has a track record of over-promising and under-delivering, and anyway he certainly won't be around in 2030. You could say that the targets are for UK territorial emissions, and not mention that the fall in emissions to date is significantly due to the fact that many of the products we buy are now made overseas, so the emissions for manufacturing them are no longer counted over here. Or you could be positive and say that this is far more than a wild promise. 
In fact, it's based on recommendations from the Climate Change Committee, which launched the sixth carbon budget on Wednesday of this week. I was able to watch the launch event online. The sixth carbon budget is for the period 2033 to 2037, but the launch event tracked a pathway from now until net zero. It explained every step of the way to achieving net zero by 2050. That in itself is an increased challenge. Previously, the target was only 80%. The figures quoted in the presentation were slightly different from those quoted by the Prime Minister, probably because of the difference represented by international aviation and shipping. They quoted 50% reduction by 2025, 64% by 2030, and 78% by 2035, leading steadily to net zero by 2050. The presentation was opened by Lord Deben, chairman of the committee. He said the targets were ambitious, but achievable, and that they must be achieved in a just and fair way. He said the longer we put off taking action, the more expensive it would be. And that reminded me very much of the Stern report, the report prepared by Lord Stern in 2006, when he told the government that the cost would be 1% of GDP, to get climate change under control. But it will be significantly more expensive if we delayed. At the launch event, they presented an economic analysis. And initially, it was believed that even having waited this long, we could still achieve our targets at a cost of only 1% of GDP. Then the presenters said that further research showed that in fact this could be done for no more than half of 1% of GDP, and that over time, the investment involved would pay for itself. The investment needed would amount to some £50 billion per annum from now on. A lot of money, but put that in the context of the £400 billion normally invested in the UK economy each year. That's an increase of about 12.5%. And most of this is expected to come from the private sector. Quite apart from stopping climate change, it's expected to pay for itself to create jobs and accelerate the post-COVID economic recovery. Early investment is important because the sooner that it is undertaken, the sooner it can take effect. The sooner it takes effect, the lower the cumulative emissions in the atmosphere. What will all this investment be spent on? Technology, but technology alone is not enough. Technology must be allied with behavioural change to achieve results. Some of the investment will be relatively high-tech, like an expansion of electrification involving both an upgrade to the transmission systems and expansion of renewables generation. Some of the investment will be relatively low-tech, like carbon capture and storage through rewilding and planting forests. Individual UK citizens currently have a carbon footprint slightly above the global average of just over 8 tonnes per annum. The plan is to cut this in half by 2035. Electrifying the transport fleet will go some way towards the reduction. Much of the cut will be achieved by retrofitting the nation's housing stock with insulation to achieve greater comfort at lower energy cost. Projects like these will generate hundreds of thousands of jobs and by 2035, 
14 million homes will be insulated each year. From 2025, it will not be permitted to install natural gas boilers unless they are suitable for conversion to hydrogen and are installed in an area scheduled to receive hydrogen supplies. Eventually, all homes not using hydrogen will be using electric heat pumps for central heating. Gas is no longer considered a bridge fuel, a bridge between fossil fuels and renewables. By 2035, it will no longer be used in the UK to generate electricity. That's just 15 years. Coal power stations will close 10 years earlier. At the moment, depending on demand, gas-powered generators supply just under 50% of UK electricity. All that must be replaced by clean power in just 15 years. These are the points that I picked up from the launch presentation. Supporting papers apparently amount to a thousand pages or so. The report is available online, link on the website, and the launch event, which was live streamed on YouTube, is available for you to replay. It's a 40 minute presentation and I strongly recommend you watch it. While until recently, the world was facing global heating of four to six degrees centigrade. It is now on track for three to four degrees centigrade. And as more and better NDCs are published by other countries in preparation for COP26 next November, the prospect of holding the increase below 2% and limiting the damage caused by climate change begins to look realistic. It's December. And there are still wildfires in California. In recent episodes of the Sustainable Futures Report, extreme weather has been up there with energy as a recurring topic. That'll probably continue. In the last few days, both the BBC and Channel 4 ran hour-long programmes on extreme weather in the UK, its consequences and the outlook for the future. These were triggered by data from the National Climate Information Centre, which predicts warmer, wetter winters and hotter, drier summers. Together with the BBC, the Met Office has produced an interactive tool which allows you to find out the predicted change in climate for your part of the country by inputting your UK postcode. There's a link to that on the website, on the Sustainable Futures Report website, which you'll remember has links to all the stories in these episodes, and you'll find it at sustainablefutures.report. Just dot .report. It's not a .com, it's sustainablefutures.report. Dr Mark McCarthy, head of the National Climate Information Centre, said this approach of bringing historical observations together with the latest climate projections really puts future extremes into context. We've seen a raft of record-breaking weather over the past few years, and when you put that side by side with the projections, it really brings to life what the weather could look like if we don't significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Client Earth, the legal practice, has sued the government on many occasions for failing to meet its obligations to deal with air pollution. Each time, Client Earth has won but much remains to be done to improve the nation's air quality. Why is this a problem? 
It is said that poor air quality leads to 50,000 premature deaths in the UK each year. These are not people we know, and many of them have pre-existing medical conditions, so maybe they'll have lost just a year or two of life. Nothing much for us to worry about. Until now. The inquest is currently in progress into the death of Ella Kisidebra, aged nine. A girl with the whole of her life before her, an active, intelligent child who loved music, singing and swimming, but a child who was admitted to hospital 28 times in her short nine years of life, with acute asthma attacks and seizures. Almost all of these admissions took place in the winter months, when air pollution was at its highest. The coroner is being asked to rule that air pollution caused her death. The inquest is examining whether air pollution caused or contributed to Ella's death, as well as how toxic air levels were monitored, the steps taken to reduce illegal levels of air pollution, and what information was given to the public about reducing exposure. The inquest has heard that illegal levels of air pollution in the area where Ella lived and died should have been treated as a public health emergency. Her mother said that during Ella's life she knew nothing about air pollution, but if she had, she would have moved the family away. They lived in Lewisham, South London, very close to the South Circular Road. This is a busy orbital route, but it was never purpose-built as a highway. It's a succession of streets designated as the South Circular. It's no motorway, so there are frequent traffic lights and the road is choked with stop-start traffic. If the coroner finds that illegal levels of air pollution were to blame, then perhaps the government will be finally spurred into action. But what's the solution? It's rather like the controversy over the Covid lockdown. The drastic actions needed to save lives cause economic damage. It would be impossible to close down the South Circular Road. Even electrifying all the vehicles, which certainly couldn't be done overnight, wouldn't solve the problem. Vehicle pollution comes not just from the exhaust, but dangerous particulates come from brakes and tyres, and electric cars have those as well. Maybe we should abandon homes right next to roads as busy as the South Circular. Maybe the government should pay for such homes to be fitted with air-cleaning ventilation systems, although that won't reduce the risks from pollution on the walk to school. There will be many other areas where illegal levels of air pollution must be addressed. It'll cost money. But how much money are lives worth? How much money do the non-fatal but chronic conditions brought on by air pollution cost the NHS? And news just in, the Centre for Cities reports that air pollution in cities fell over the course of the first national lockdown, but now exceeds pre-pandemic levels in 80% of places studied. People suffering from the effects of air pollution are more vulnerable to COVID-19. And finally, I leave you with the news that if we ever get back to the normal where we take a taxi, it's likely to have a human driver for some time to come. At least Uber seems to think so, as it has just sold off its businesses researching into driverless cars and flying taxis. That's it for another week. I hope you are keeping safe and well and coping with the isolation we're all facing at the moment. The major problem of all this is that it's difficult to see when it will end. 
the horizon seems to be further away all the time. All credit to the researchers who have produced a vaccine in record time. It's grounds for hope, but it will be months, if not many months, before it brings us back to anywhere near normal. All I can hope is that you stay safe and well, and I also hope that the Sustainable Futures Report does something to relieve the boredom. There'll be another one next week. But I'm planning for that to be the last, probably until February. I'm working on a roundtable discussion on carbon markets and pricing, which may take place in January. I shall also set up online discussions for patrons to take part in next year. Oh, and if you'd like to be a patron, you can follow the link from the website to find the full details. Yes, the website sustainablefutures.report and of course you'll find the full text of each episode together with links to all the sources of my stories. So that is indeed it for this week. I'm Anthony Day. Stay safe. There'll be another Sustainable Futures Report next week. <laughs>